Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Everyone always says, Pastor Will, when are you going to teach Revelation? When are you going to do Revelation? When are you going to do Revelation? And then you get in the middle of Revelation, and they're like, wow, this is rough. <laughs> so it's always good to see the one nine at the, head, the, the chapter heading, you know? It's always good to see that there. Because, you know, you know, we've gone through the bowls, the wrath, we've gone through the, you know, the destruction of Babylon, we've gone through all those horrors. God's unmitigated wrath has been poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. Babylon the Great has been destroyed. And at this point in time, Armageddon's in full swing and the world is on the brink of annihilation. <laughs> Even worse than it is now. But into that catastrophe comes the great shout from the multitudes of heaven. Four times they say, hallelujah, because our Jesus is coming to the rescue. So chapter 19, we begin in verse one. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he has judged the great core which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia! Here we see three of the first four hallelujahs in Revelation 19, and all of heaven is saying it. They're praising God for rescuing the world, specifically from Babylon. Here we see after these things, what things? Babylon's complete destruction in that seventh bowl judgment. After God deals with Babylon, it says, John says, I heard a great voice. It just means a loud sound. I heard a loud sound. It says of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia. Now, Alleluia, this is the only time that word is used in the Bible, is in chapter 19 here. It's used four times. And, and we usually think of it as Hallelujah, right? You know, we think of Hallelujah because that's how it's used in the Old Testament. Um, some people, there's some debate on what Alleluia means. Some will say, well, it's just the, the Greek form of Hallelujah. But, but, Remember, it's heaven that's saying this, and when we get to heaven, there won't be any languages. There, we'll all speak one language, the language of heaven. Paul said, though I speak with the tongues of men or of angels. And so some would say, well, this is the actual way that you say alleluia because that's the heavenly language. I don't know if that's true, but either way, it means the same thing, which means all of you praise the Lord. It's not hallelujah me, it's hallelujah you. That, that's the idea. It's, it's praise ye, praise you all the Lord. All of you, praise the Lord. So when this happens, when after Babylon's destroyed, all of heaven erupts and says, everybody, praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. All of you, praise the Lord. Ascribe salvation, power, honor to him. Literally, in the Greek, it reads, the salvation, the glory, the honor, the power unto the Lord our God. Humanity is on the verge of extinction here in this situation. And what they're saying is, is the rescue didn't come from any nation. It didn't come from any politician, any leader. It didn't come from the church. It didn't come from Israel. It didn't come from anybody but the Lord. It was all Him. Just like David said when 
he was going through his own issues. In Psalm 3, verse 8, David was in a mess. He starts off, he says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. And he asked the Lord, you got to rescue me, Lord. If you don't come through, no one can. And at verse 8, he says, salvation unto the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. You know, we, we look at this, and we're all going to say this at the end, but we don't need to wait until the end to declare that salvation, the rescue, is all God. Like David, we can declare it now. And so I ask you, do you recognize that Jesus is your only hope for rescue each day? That he's the only hope of rescue for our world? And do you declare it like David did? And do you tell others to declare it? That's the meaning of hallelujah. You need to praise the Lord, man. You know, so you need to ascribe salvation to God because he's the only one who can get us out of this mess. Are we doing that? Because the rescue is all his, therefore glory and honor are all his. The highest status, the highest praise belongs to him. And all power is unto him. This concept that all power, the, the, the idea that when, that, that when God acts, it happens. This is a, the declaration that God is unstoppable, you know? Whatever he exerts himself to do will be accomplished. You know, if God sets out to do something, it doesn't matter what anyone else does. You're not stopping him. And so when we look at this praise that's erupting in heaven you know, these are things that we can give praise to God now for. Do, we, do you declare how awesome God is? You know, do you ascribe to him the highest status in your life? Do you talk about how powerful he is? Do you tell others to declare those things too? Now, this hallelujah doesn't come out of nowhere. It's in response to the command in verse 20 of chapter 18 where it says, Rejoice over her, um, you know, thou heaven, and you holy ones, apostles and, and prophets. And all the saints in heaven respond in obedience, in unison. Let's praise the Lord. Let's praise the Lord. He did it. He did it. Why do you do it? Well, verse 2, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the, the earth with her fornication, her idolatry, and he has avenged the blood of his servants. Why is he worthy of all these things? Well, there's two reasons that are given here. First off, his, his judgments are true and righteous. If you've, if you've ever watched you know, or read Alice in Wonderland, you know, there's that famous character in there called the Queen of Hearts, right? And what is she doing all the time? doesn't matter. The most frivolous reasons off with their heads, right? That is not our God. <laughs> he is not the queen of hearts from Alice in Wonderland. His evaluations, his judgments, they are based on truth and righteousness, reality and justice. You know, they are not based in his imagination of perceived slights or insults. No, they're based on what really happened and they're based on justice. And when you look at what Babylon the Great did to the world, it had to be destroyed. But not only did God do it, his praise for that reason for judging them, but because he avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. In answer, God is answering the prayers of those who have been killed for their faith. Now they worship the Lord because he judges Babylon, but they also worship the Lord because Babylon will never again threaten the world. Look at verse three. And again they said, hallelujah, don't stop praising the Lord, everybody. Keep it up. Why? Why? 
because Babylon will never, ever again harm a child of God. Never again. No human power will ever rise up to deceive and corrupt humanity again after God does this. Never. You say, wait, isn't Satan loosed at the end of the millennial kingdom? Yes, but there's no human government formed. He goes out and he goes out to deceive the nations and anybody who listens, they come, they gather against Jerusalem. There's no war, there's no fighting, there's no persecution, there's no pain. Babylon's gone. God just rains fire and down upon them and it's over. Never again will a child of God be harmed by those who don't follow the Lord. And so it says in verse four, the four and 20 elders and the four beasts or living creatures, the cherubim, they fell down and they worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, amen, it's true, it's true. You never have to worry about it again. Listen, if you, you got somebody that's persecuting you or whatever, I, I realize that what we deal with here is probably nothing like what our brothers and sisters deal with in other parts of the world. But, but the reality is, is you know, whatever you're going through, it, it can't last forever. There's going to come a time when the smoke of that is going to rise forever and ever. Never will it rise again. So they say, it's true. It's true. And then they say, hallelujah, keep on praising the Lord. Keep on praising the Lord. Well, heaven doesn't just praise the Lord because he comes to rescue the world, but heaven praises God for what's going to come after, for the imminent kingdom that's coming. Verses 5 and 6, and a voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and you that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. This voice, we don't know who it comes from, but it comes from God's throne, and it calls for God's servants to praise more. Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. Now, these are all believers of all time. And it's interesting because it describes all believers of all times. Obviously, we're not Israel. We're the church. We, we have different things about us than we saw happen in the Old Testament. But all believers of all time have had these two attributes, They are servants of God, and they fear the Lord. You know, these two attributes should describe my life. That number one, I see myself as God's servant. That I worship him, and I assist others in doing so. That I'm his servant. You know, if, if you're a believer, you have to see yourself that way. You know, sometimes people struggle with that. Sometimes Christians struggle with that. You know, but we have to come to terms with it. Revelation chapter four, the very last verse of the chapter says, it says, uh, well, let me read it to you. It says, um, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. Like every single one of us has to come to grips with the concept that I was created to please the Lord. He's my creator. He's my maker. I'm his servant. That's how believers see themselves. We're God's servant. And then secondly, we reverence him. We fear the Lord. We love what he loves. We hate what he hates. You know, what he wants is most important, is most important to us, to me, to you. And so does that describe you this morning? Do you see yourself as God's servant, that you worship him and you assist others in doing so? Do you have that reverence for him, that what he wants is what's most important to you? Well, 
As this call to praise God comes from this anonymous voice that says that all the believers in heaven obey because it says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. And it says, and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. (laughs) Can you imagine how large this group is to make a sound like this? You know, as I, I get older, my, my, I, I was an 80s kid, and so, you know, and, and, and so I listened. To, that was the time when you, know, you walked around with a boombox on your shoulder, you know. <laughs> Some of you guys are old enough to remember that, you know. And so, you know, music was loud and in the ears, and my ears are damaged. And so, you know, sometimes when the music up here is loud, it hurts my ears because they just don't work like they're supposed to anymore. Um, listen, there's going to be no earplugs in heaven, and if you don't like loud music now, you're going to have to get used to it then. All right? I mean, look, I mean think of that. Look at it. It says, the voice of the great multitude is the voice of many waters, the voice of many thunderings. One of my favorite things is when the, the singers pull back, you know, they pull back and, and from their microphones and you just hear the congregation singing. That's awesome. But like, we're what? You know, 150 people each service? Can you imagine something sounding like thunder or many waters and this? That's going to be awesome, you know? I, I, I've never heard thunder and thought, oh, how cute right? Powerful. Loud. And when we say hallelujah, can you imagine how awesome it is going to be to lend your voice to that? That mighty thundering, the many waters, the great multitude? What an awesome thing to be a part of that. And they say it because the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Omnipotent means the Lord, the Almighty One. He reigns. He's in complete control. The king is exercising his authority. And when the king exercises his authority, he can't be stopped. And he's a good king. It's good that he reigns. Now, we see this reaction here from the idea of God reigning, the idea of God judging Babylon. That is a completely different reaction that we see in chapter 17 and 18 when Babylon's destroyed and then from the previous chapters, you know, when God's judging the earth. You know, this is why the Lord can't just stop at judging Babylon and go, okay, that's enough. You know, I know you guys don't like me, but we're gonna, you know, we're just gonna be okay from now on. No, when we see Babylon judged, all of heaven goes, Lord, you're true and right, you're justice, this is great. The world weeps, right? That's what we read last week. They weep and they wail and they cry and they say, no, life's over. The world weeps at the thwarting of its own self-destruction, but the righteous rejoice at God's rescue. There's that scene where, you know, there's in the, the Disney movie, The Incredibles, where the, the gentleman's, you know, trying to jump off a building, he's trying to commit suicide, and then, you know, uh, you know Mr. Incredible saves him, you know, and then afterwards, you know, he's, the guy who got saved is all upset, you know, and he's like, I don't understand why you're so upset, I just saved your life. He's like, you didn't save my life, you ruined my death. <laughs> That's the world. That's what the world's going to do, you know? They're going to see Babylon burning and go, we were going to go down to the place of glory resisting you, and now you don't even give us that. (laughs) The world shakes its fist in God in defiance to their last breath. 
But the righteous ascribe high status to the Lord. They rejoice when he exerts his authority over the world. There's no gray in those two responses. There's no middle ground. The world doesn't want to be rescued. It doesn't want God's kingdom. And so for the kingdom to be set up, the rebels have to be removed. And heaven says, Lord, we're ready for the kingdom. Now, there's a third reason that heaven praises God, and it's because Jesus will be returning to earth with his bride, with us. Look at verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I love this here because in verse 7, the same people who are declaring, Hallelujah, you told us to praise the Lord. Okay, we're going to praise the Lord because he's the Lord God omnipotent reigns. But then they turn to one another and they say, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor unto him. The phrase let us, it means it's in the subjunctive mood, which means something's not happening and it needs to, they're saying we need to start doing it. And so it's not let us, but it's we should. Hey, hey, we should be glad and rejoice. You know, we're shouting hallelujah, but we need to do more. We should be glad and rejoice and give honor to the lamb because his marriage has come. It's almost like every believer in heaven is going to turn to each other and say, this is it. This is it. It's happening. Everything we'd hoped for, everything we prayed for, it's happening. This is not enough. We need to praise him more and give him more honor. You need to celebrate. And if you ever stare into the darkness of your bedroom at night and wonder, is all this real? Am I really going to rule and reign with Jesus? Well, let me promise you this. Someday you're going to be in heaven and some other believer, it might even be me, is going to look at you and you're both going to say to each other, it's happening all right. It's happening all right. And you know what? We're not doing enough. We need to amp up this celebration because Jesus deserves more praise. I, I have sometimes folks will come and, and I get it. We're all different personalities. They'll say, I don't like music. I don't like singing. So, you know, I come to church, you know, after the singing's done. Well, you're going to have to get on that pony at some point. You're going to have to because, you know, this is going to be a celebration. It's going to be amping up higher and higher, okay? Because every single time people are celebrating, they're saying hallelujah, somebody's saying, do it more. Why should there be a celebration? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. The word marriage here means the actual wedding. The wedding has arrived, and the Lamb's wife, Jesus' bride, has made herself ready. Who's, who's his wife? Who's his bride? Well, that's us, the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, it says, Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, he says this in 2 Corinthians eleven two. 
He says, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He's listen, listen, I'm serious. I don't want to see you hanging out with any, any other guys. You're engaged. I've set up an engagement between you and Jesus, and I'm going to present you as a chaste virgin to him on the day of your wedding. So, you know, it's, I see people say, I'm married to Jesus. You're not married to Jesus yet. You're engaged. <laughs> Biblical. You're not married to Jesus yet. You're engaged. Wear your ring well. Wear your ring well. This almost never happens now, but when I was younger and, you know, my shape was different. Every once in a while, you know, you'd be driving. I used to have a convertible, and so, you know, I'd be driving, and, you know, and, and a young lady might look over, and she'd go, hey, and I would do this. Hey. Wear your ring well. We're engaged right now, but we are his bride, and in this meantime, uh, like Ephesians 5 says, this is what he's, what he's doing with us. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We're the bride of Christ. We're his bride. And so this is the wedding day. We're engaged to Jesus now. The wedding will take place after the rapture in heaven. And no, it will not be a Vegas-style drive-through wedding, which would be necessary if the church goes through the Great Tribulation. This will be a full-blown wedding. After the rapture, but before the wedding takes place, every Christian will stand before Christ's judgment seat to be rewarded for what we did in this life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, Know this, that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What is that? Sounds ominous. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not to be judged for sin or anything like that. That's already been done on the cross. Second Corinthians, or, uh, second, uh, First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15 describes this event. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. Paul was talking about, hey, we all have different roles in the body of Christ, and, and you know, everybody gets their reward for being faithful to their role. And then he starts off and he explains how that works. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus birthed the church. He's the foundation of the church. And we build on top of that. Now, if any man build upon this foundation of Jesus, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. In other words, I can build beautiful things or I can build that don't perish over time and I can build, or I can build things that are perishable, things that are, are, are worthless, things that are of great value or things that are worthless. So every man's work shall be manifest, revealed, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall test every man's work of what sort it was. Was it of precious things or of worthless things? If any man's work abide uh, which he built thereon, it says he shall receive a reward. In other words, when the fire tests it to see, you know, what, what, the Lord's, what, what you will be rewarded for is, did you do it because you love Jesus? What, your, what was your motivation? And then secondly, did, did you do it the Lord's way? I can do good things and not do it the Lord's way, and I'm not going to receive a reward for that. You know? 
Did I do it because I wanted other people to see, or did I do it simply because I love Jesus, you know? So it says if it, the fire's going to come, it's going to test to see what material it's of, and if something remains after that's done, you'll get a reward for that. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. You won't get a reward for that, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So it's not a judgment for sin. That's already been dealt with on the cross. This is a, a reward place. The bima was the, the, the place where the athletes would stand on to be rewarded afterwards. And so that's what the judgment seat of Christ is, the bima seat of Christ. Now, the rewards that remain from that judgment will then become part of our wedding apparel when we come to the wedding. Our crowns, for example, you know? And so in that beautiful moment after the judgment seat of Christ, we will be ready to be presented to the Father as his bride. When he rewards us, he gives us these gifts, then we'll be presented to the bride with those gifts. Now, yeah, look at Jude 24. Jude 24 describes it. Jude 24. I had a smart aleck uh, classmate at Bible college, and someone said, turn to Jude, Jude whatever verse. And he goes, which chapter? Jude only has one chapter. Jude 24. Verse 24, that beautiful verse, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Awesome promise. I love that verse. But it's got two parts in there that are important to understand. Now unto him, Jesus, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He is going to present us faultless before the Father, and he's the one who keeps us from falling. He's the one that helps us to get prepared for that day. We can really misunderstand. It's so important to understand this verse because if we, we misunderstand how this, this wedding situation works, we might have some wrong ideas. The same person who presents us faultless to the Father is the same person who keeps us from falling so we can make ourselves ready for the presentation. And so we see in verse 8 those exact words. Why she made herself ready? Because to her, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness, King James says, righteousness of the saints, but it's plural, which means it is the righteousness says, or the righteous deeds, or righteous acts, or good works of the saints. So this is part of our wedding apparel. And yet, it's not all up to us because we are granted that we could be arrayed in these things. The word granted, it means to give someone the opportunity to do something. And all throughout our lives, Jesus is opening doors for his work in our lives. First off, what does Jesus grant us? He grants us his righteousness. The moment we get saved. The moment we get saved, we're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're washed, we're pure. So that like a Song of Solomon chapter 4 verse 7 says, you are all fair, my love, there is no spot in you. That is what he does for us the moment we get saved. We're justified. Secondly, we read about it in Ephesians chapter 5, 26 through 27. He is constantly washing us in his word, sanctifying us, making us more like him, changing us, right? Each and every day, through the power of his word, he is changing us, making us holy. And then, thirdly, we read in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, 
Jesus is going to rescue us from this body of sin. Philippians 3.20, for our life is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for him to come back, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty, omnipotent, reigns. He reigns even over this mess. This body, this vile body, which craves things that God doesn't want, that doesn't please Him, that doesn't want to be submitted to Him, He's able to bring it into submission to Him because He's going to bring me, give, give me a brand new one. I, one of the most common questions I get asked, and it, I, I've, I've wondered it too. I'm like, well, Lord, I, I know me. I know how I am. When I get to heaven, I'll probably mess up. No, He won't. He's going to give you a new body that's in subjection to Him. Get rid of this vile thing, you know, this rotten thing that we're living in, you know, and give us a new body that never struggles with those things ever again. Jesus will transform our sin-affected bodies into glorified bodies of the rapture. All of those things are gifts. His righteousness when we get saved, His work in our hearts, our work in our lives, changing us through His Word every day, and our new bodies that we eventually get, all of these things are gifts from Jesus to His bride, and they will constitute our wedding dress. And yet, the fact that it is our righteousnesses means that we are not simply passive recipients of these gifts. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said this, For I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, and yet not I. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We do have a part to play. We have a partnership with Christ in this. In Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, he says very clearly, listen, you've been baptized. You have this new life that the Lord's given to you. Therefore, reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. And don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey its desires anymore. But instead, yield each member of your body up to the Lord as an instrument to be used for righteousness. That's the part we play. And so we come to the Lord on a regular basis and say, Lord, I'm not enslaved to sin anymore. And so, Lord, I don't have to just say whatever comes to my mind. Lord, I give you my mouth. Will you fill me with your spirit? Will you only speak things through me, the things that are edifying, things that please you? Lord, these ears are yours. I yield them up to you. I don't want to listen to deception. I don't want to listen to gossip. I don't want to listen to fear-mongering. I don't want to listen to someone who wants to make my heart cold towards others. I give you my feet. You take me where you want me to go, Lord. That's the part we play. And then he does all the work through us. That's why Paul told the Corinthians he was jealous for them. He wanted them to experience all the rewards that Jesus is going to hand out at the judgment seat. And so he says, wear the ring well. You see, if we, we go to one extreme, either way we get into trouble. You know, if we make this idea of the rewards that we have, we get from Jesus, the things he gives to us, if, if we make that all about only doing good works, then we miss the most important part, that it's Jesus working in us and through us. And we do it in the flesh. But if we fail to partner with the Lord and go, well, it's all the Lord, well, then you'll just simply miss out because it's through our partnership, our yielding to him, that he works, lives, and works through us. Don't make either mistake. Stay right with the Scriptures. 
It's summed up so clearly in Philippians chapter 2, a verse that's very much misunderstood because people fail often to read the following verse. Paul in Philippians 2.12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The Bible says that. But then it says why in verse 13, For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God's the one who gives us the desire to please him. God's the one who gives us the ability to please him. But I have to partner with him in that. That's what it means to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So are you partnering with him? Because it's gonna affect your your wedding garments. Verse nine. And he said unto me, write, John had, John had put the pen down, apparently. <laughs> he's just seeing all this, and he's so excited. He apparently thought, this is it. It's the end. It's over. You know, my vision's done. This is, this is what we're heading for. But the angel says, you're not done yet, John. He says, right. You know, I don't know what John's mindset was while he was exiled in Patmos. All I know is, is I was, if I was John, I'd be having some rough days. And now to see everything that Jesus promised, everything that Christians have been hoping and praying for actually happening, that had to be exciting, right? And so the angel tells him, you're not done, John. There's more to write starting with this. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. This is the fourth of the seven blessings that are in the book of Revelation. Blessed are they which are invited, called, unto the marriage supper, the wedding feast, we would normally call it the reception of the Lamb. In Jewish culture back then, after they would have the wedding ceremony, the wedding ceremony would usually be fairly private, only the closest family members would be in attendance. They would then consummate the marriage, and then either that night or the next day, um, they would, the couple would invite guests to their wedding feast. The feast would last anywhere from four to seven days, and it was considered the best week of that couple's life because you'd likely never be able to splurge like that again. And so when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, the wedding will have already taken place in heaven, but it will be kicked off. His kingdom will be kicked off with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, those invited to the reception, to the wedding supper, they are the guests. They are the guests, they're not the bride. So, you know, who are these guests? Because that's not us. Well, John the Baptist, he identifies himself as one of those guests. You know, he says, listen, remember when he was saying when someone was brought to uh, his attention, he said, hey, you know, uh, Jesus is baptizing more people than, than you're baptizing, John. And so he says, listen, does the bridegroom get upset because... The groom has eyes only for the bride? Of course not. He must increase and I must decrease. So John identifies himself as I'm like the best man. I'm a guest at the wedding. I'm not, I'm not part of the bride. I'm not, I'm not the groom. Jesus later on, he explained that John is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He lumps them in with that separate group. He says he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And so 
this blessing. Blessed are those who are the guests who are invited. That is for the Old Testament saints and, and very likely, I don't know for sure, but probably the tribulation saints too. And if it is for them, obviously they're the ones living during this difficult time. They're the ones living under Babylon the Great. What an encouragement to them who are facing death daily to know it's going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end. You're going to be a guest at the greatest, the greatest party that's ever had, the greatest reception that will ever, ever be. And he says, these are the true sayings of God. In other words, these struggling believers during the great tribulation, we see them numerous times. The Lord says, hang in there. Don't, let, don't be deceived. Don't, 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 don't give up. Don't give in. Don't listen to the deception of the enemy. Don't listen to anyone who tells you building something here, building that earthly kingdom is better than building something eternal. Stick with Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize. Be faithful unto death, he says. Now, we may not be hunted like animals by Babylon the Great, but we do feel her impact because 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 says the mystery of iniquity is already at work. It's already at work. 1 John 4, verse 3 tells us that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. So we do feel the effects of Babylon the Great. And this is why Jesus told us what he did on the Sermon on the Mount, to not get sidetracked. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, It's fascinating, the the word that he uses here. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust does corrupt. That's the, the same word used referring to what Babylon does, that she has corrupted everything through her fornication, through her idolatry. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and dust does corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's what we've been talking about, right? Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Jesus, in other places, compares the lies of the enemy, the deception of the enemy to thieves. So why do we need to do this? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen, I don't know about you, but I, I want my heart to be toward my Jesus who's coming for me. Isn't that what you, your heart to be? That's where I want my heart to be. <laughs> I want to give my heart to a cause or a creed or a leader or a hobby or even a career because that results in, in deception in some way. In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus was talking about the end times, he said, who then is that faithful and wise servant? Matthew 24, 45. Whom, the Lord has, whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. You know, he, he has entrusted us to, to care for those who are in our circle of influence. You know, if they're lost, to share the gospel with them. If they're a believer, to, to, to disciple them, right? To pour into their lives. So who is that faithful servant? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find him so doing, doing what he's supposed to do doing those things. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. You know, the rewards that we have in heaven. It's the next part. It's a challenge. And one I think we don't think about very much. 
But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, oh, my Lord, delays his coming, he shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him, or, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I was studying this week, those verses took on whole new meaning to me because I always thought of it as something far into the future, something I, I wouldn't see. But we are witnessing this very thing right, in, right before our eyes right now. We're witnessing these verses happening right before our eyes because whether it's politics or masks or vaccines or social causes or some other non-biblical issue, non-essential issue, people who name uh, Christ as their Savior are giving their hearts to those things and they are beating their brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with them. They're saying, this is the issue. This is where I take my stand. And if you don't agree with me, you're anathema. And I'm watching it happen all around me. Even though the Bible tells us we're not to become entangled with those, the affairs of this life. Guys, that is not the Lord leading you in that direction. That's Babylon's influence. That's Babylon's influence. That's not the Lord. And if you become wrapped up in that stuff, get back to making yourself ready for the wedding. Get back to making yourself ready for the wedding. When Jesus returns, I don't want to be at a political rally or in an argument with, you know, with those who disagree with me on social media or boycotting a church because of their COVID policies or lack thereof. I want the blessing that comes from him finding me doing his work, pouring into my spouse, pouring into my kids, pouring into my brothers and sisters in Christ and sharing the gospel with the lost because that's what we're supposed to be doing. One more verse. We gotta get through this. Verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. <laughs> John is not an impartial recorder of these visions. He is emotionally impacted. He is intellectually impacted, and he is he's in awe of the Lord. Can you blame him? I've had dark seasons in life, but I haven't watched my closest friends be killed and then have those same killers come for me and exile me to an island because they couldn't. John has spent 12 chapters worth of visions watching his future people, whether it's the nation of Israel or Christian or believers, watching them both be persecuted like animals. To see that all of that will be worth it that he's going to be here for this someday? It had to be overwhelming. And so while John surely knows not to worship angels, I won't blame him for getting a little bit disoriented here. The angel does correct him, though. He says, see thou do it not, which literal translation, make it not happen. <laughs> Whatever you just did, let's pretend it didn't happen and, and get it right, Okay. I'm just your fellow servant. Not another believer. The word fellow servant here means a slave who stands next to another slave. I'm just another servant of God, just like you. 
and it's confusing here because it says, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren. The word of there is not in the original text. He's, he's saying, I'm a servant just like you, John, a servant just like all your brothers and sisters in Christ. All the people you're seeing here worship the Lord and, and experience the wedding and all that kind of stuff. He goes, I'm just a servant like you, just like them. Instead, worship God. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John, you claimed in the beginning of Revelation that you were imprisoned for the testimony of Jesus. These guys are here. They have the testimony of Jesus. What's the testimony of Jesus? The witness of Christ's work in our lives. The the work of Christ in our lives which results in the, the wedding clothes and adornments that we have. He says, I may not have the wedding clothes, but I'm just a servant like you guys. So, Worship God. Your position's correct, just fix the focus. For the testimony of Jesus, the work of Jesus in our lives, in and through us, that's the spirit, the heart, the mindset of prophecy. What is prophecy all about? Not learning cool stuff, even though Revelation does talk about some interesting things. Prophecy is about Jesus' work in my life. If all you've gotten out of Revelation is, wow, crazy stuff is going to happen, then our study is a failure. But if you are closer to Jesus and more like Jesus today than when we first started our study of Revelation, then we're a huge success. Because that's what it's all about. Jesus, his work in us and through us. That's how we started the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, verse 3. The book is announced with a blessing. Blessed is he that reads. We've done that. And they that hear the words of this prophecy. Hopefully you've done that. But here's where we all, we partner with the Lord. And keep those things that are written therein. For the time, it's near, it's close. If that's what's happening, we're reading, we're hearing, we're learning, we're we're applying what we're, we're learning, and Jesus is working in us and through us. That's what Revelation's all about. And so as we close and the worship team comes up this morning, I want to read a verse to you from, a couple verses from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 of Colossians, it says, if you then be risen with Christ, what does it mean if, if you then be risen with Christ? If you, you know, have repented of your sins and put your trust in the Lord Jesus, the Bible says that your old life is dead and you've been raised up to walk in newness of life, right? You have a new life in Christ, right? Old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. So that's you. If you're a believer today, that's you, that's me. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things, uh, things on the earth. Why? That old life is dead. Living that way is the old way of life. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, when he'll appear, then you shall also appear with him in glory. That's what I want. Amen? 
That's, I, want, I, want, I want that. I want to be about his business. And then when he appears, I appear with him in glory, and he finds me doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. So let's all stand. Lord, we love you because you first, you first loved us. And so this morning, we just recommit our lives to you. Lord, Lord all we have is yours. We present our bodies to you a living sacrifice because, God, that's, that's a reasonable act of worship. It's the most logical thing to do because of all you've done for us. Jesus, you have granted us so many gifts. You've, you've given us this, this, this cleansing, this washing, and you've clothed us in your righteousness. You're working in us and through us, and someday you're going to give us a new body. So Lord, we decide we want to partner with you. We want to wear our ring well. We want to keep our eyes on the prize and press forward towards it. Knowing, Lord, that when you appear, we'll appear with you in glory. And what a glorious that day will be as we all sing hallelujah together. So Lord, we love you. Fill us with your spirit. Enable us to, 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 to live this out, Lord. Live through us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.